Welcome to the Enterprise GTM Podcast, hosted by Tim Zonka and Vidya Raman. Each episode takes a deep dive into how to successfully maneuver the unique dynamics of enterprise go-to-market while candidly discussing successful approaches, pitfalls, and failures alike. Our guests are seasoned company founders, GTM execs, technology buyers, and end users. Please note that the views expressed by individuals in these podcasts are not to be treated as investment advice. They are also not representing the views of their employers, current or previous. Welcome to the Enterprise GTM podcast. Just a little over four years ago, when we were deploying recurrent neural networks in production, our customers would ask us to explain the difference between AI and machine learning and whether we were doing one or the other, obviously AI being the cooler kid on the block back then. Fast forward to now, AI has become so accessible that enterprises are not asking about AI versus machine learning anymore. Instead, they ask probably which LLM is being used and how they can fine tune or customize it. Clearly, we've come a really, really long way in a few short years in many ways. And at the same time, it's not clear that the rest of the infrastructure has caught up with what engineering teams need to do in order to ship and operate this kind of software. So in this podcast, we have leaders from world-class companies leading highly innovative engineering teams who are in the forefront of AI adoption. And let's hear what they have to say on this topic. So super excited today to have Guhan Venguswamy, who's the head of platform at Jasper.ai, and Sushant Hire, who's the Senior Director of Machine Learning at RingCentral. Welcome to both of you. Really, really happy to have you here. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. So let's kick this off. Sushant, if you want to, please go ahead. Tell us a little bit about yourself. What does RingCentral do? And tell us a little bit about what kinds of customers you serve and things like that. So I've been an AI founder for a long time, always been in the startup journey. A couple of years ago, I co-founded a startup called DeepFX, which we ended up selling to RingCentral. We are a deep tech AI company. We used to release speech AI as a service. And so we RingCentral was one of our customers. We, they ended up acquiring us back in the middle of COVID. And so since then, I've been here trying to create an AI org, and then sort of infuse AI in all of our RingCentral suite of products. RingCentral is a business communication platform. We started off as a phone company, but now we have like phone, video, webinars, events, contact centers, or the whole, the entire suite of products, anything and everything that a business would need to communicate with its customers as well as within the business itself. So RingCentral has a product for that, and I manage the AI arm for them. Awesome. Thank you, Sushant. No small task trying to infuse AI, as you put it, in all existing products at RingCentral. That's amazing. Yeah. Gohan, tell us a bit about yourself. Tell us a bit about your background. What does Jasper do? I'm sure there are very few people that don't know Jasper by this time, but it still would be helpful to refresh everyone. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Gohan Vingaswamy, I run platform engineering and AI at Jasper. You know, I've been around the block a little bit, not always been in the startup game my whole career. I spent a good chunk of my time doing consulting for the DoD and building a lot of business development work for selling projects there. Kind of shifted my focus after that and being in the startup game six, seven years ago. And 
ever since then, you know, kind of the last few years, I've been working at Jasper and kind of helping grow this company. And for those who aren't already familiar with Jasper, we're a marketing-focused AI co-pilot. It's a tool specifically geared to help marketers generate better content, higher quality content, and actually expedite all of their actions that really are geared towards like what marketers really need to do at any given time. So if you're thinking about, hey, I need to create a new campaign and I need to turn that campaign into a bunch of LinkedIn posts or social media posts and then turn that into a blog and then turn that blog into another campaign and remix it into that other thing, you know, Jasper helps you kind of through the entire life cycle of the marketer's journey. And at Jasper, what I do right now is really focused on platform development, platform engineering. So that's things like infrastructure and ops. A team we call developer experience or DevX is really a big focus of mine, making sure that our engineers are fully geared to be able to work in the very fast moving environment of AI. And, you know, the last is our AI team who's really focused on building great applied AI tools that our customers are going to love using. Awesome. Thank you, Gohan. So Gohan, let's go a bit deeper. So within this platform team that you're leading within Jasper, I think you mentioned a little bit about developer experience, how one of your key goals is to keep your developers super duper productive. Could you please unpack for us a bit about this platform, perhaps the technology stack, you know, that aspect, as well as you talked about developers and the AI team. Could you also help us understand the different personas or your end customers for the platform that you're serving? Yeah, sure. So our platform overall for our product is built primarily in Node as well as in Python. We build a lot on top of some of these foundational models as well as our own internal models to provide the best possible outputs for our customer based on the use case. So a lot of that is our ability to actually operate in a multi-model perspective. So we've built our architecture to be more geared towards what does the customer really want to get out of a particular use case and then finding the appropriate AI tool or even non-AI tool that actually gives them that response. And so a lot of the times that comes with really good prompting and building a better framework around how you get really solid prompting. Some of that is context awareness. So a good RAG system that's able to pull in customer information appropriately and utilize it for context on what their output should be. And then the other side of it is we even fine tune and create some of our own models that are more technically geared towards what the customer needs. You know, there are some gaps with some of the larger models that we think we can address with really small focused fine tune models. On the platform side, the developer experience side, we do a lot of really amazing stuff. You know, we build our own CLI internally, completely out of Rust, which is super fun. And what it allows us to do is onboard new engineers in a few hours. You know, within an hour, they've got their entire stack running locally with just a few commands on their CLI. And then it's more about knowledge transfer and architecture that we can really try and get people onboarded and working quickly. And ultimately, our goal with onboarding from a developer experience perspective is trying to get new engineers ready to commit code within the first day or two of being at the company. And so the faster we can get people comfortable and comfortable shipping, and then that also comes with building really great you know, CI and CD, ensuring that people are comfortable with releasing to production. And yeah, those are all the things that really our ops and our DevX team are truly focused on. 
Awesome. So productivity is obviously front and center to everything that you're doing. And besides developers, so you're also serving the ML engineering org of the house. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So we also do RCI pipelining as well as tooling for our ML engineers. We use AnyScale as our inference serving platform, which allows us to both build new models and serve them very quickly. We're doing a lot of great optimizations in that and have been using that to some really good success. And a lot of that is based in Vertex as well as in GCP, right? So we we utilize the best tools available to us to help our ML teams out. And our core customer at the end of the day, I mean, I think at, no matter who you are in the organization at Jasper, our core value is to be customer obsessed. And that means if you're a product engineer, a platform engineer, or an AI engineer, whatever... At the end of the day, you still need to understand your customer and really be as close to your customer as possible. And for us, that is the enterprise marketer. It's the person who is at that enterprise company that's focused on content marketing, that's focused on you know the various types of marketing jobs that need to be done. And that's where we get all of our inspiration from to build new AI tools. Gotcha. It's amazing that leading a platform for Jasper, you're also obsessed with the end user for Jasper. I think that's a very good lens to view this role within companies. Let's put a pin on customer obsession. Would love to come back to that and uh, with you, Kohan. But for now, let's switch to Sushant. Sushant, would love to hear from you. So you told us a bit about Ring Central's customers. Tell us a little bit about the platform or the product that you're leading and I mean, obviously, you're trying to infuse AI into everything in Ring Central, so maybe everybody's a customer. But like, how are you approaching the aspect of what you have the sphere of influence on, and who are your customers? What we are essentially trying to do is we have created this whole AI platform called RingSense, which we are essentially using to latch on to every single context of conversations. So we are essentially selling our RingSense platform to our end customers. It's in a variety of different ways. You can buy it as an add-on. You can buy it as a standalone product. But at the end, we are trying to, depending on your persona, we are sort of creating different suite of products along our portfolio. So we started off last year with the first sort of use case of sales, people who sort of do outbound calling, like whose job is to pick up a phone and keep on dialing, dialing, dialing. So we started off with those. We have a lot of like very customer specific on you know contact center after that we started off a product for quality management within the contact centers deal intelligence for sales and then now we are also launching something which is productivity for an employee as how do you sort of you're taking so many meetings you're part of so many phone calls and how do you sort of now get access to this information which is already present at the platform you have all of these recordings nobody bothers to go back or look into it because that's kind of the way historically the data has been so it has been a lot about how do you first ingest this massive scale of data that flows through Ring Central? How do you analyze it, extract insights out of it? And then at the end, how do you contextually use it to help the end customer? Productivity being one part of it for an individual, for managers, it's more about, hey, how do we improve sales, for instance, or how do we improve like contact center experience? And how do you sort of use all of this intelligence that is coming out of this platform and then use it to effectively either improve our top line or reduce churn in Connect Center? So those are like a suite of products that we are focusing on, which sort of is a pretty complicated as well as interesting problems is Ring Central has been around the block for 20 years. So it's not at all easy to 
infuse AI into a product which, you know, has been long for so long. So it's a lot of uh, Ring Central infrastructure wasn't always on the cloud as well. And so it's been an interesting experience of how do you, and my startup, we were like pretty much cloud. We were like completely on Kubernetes and we were basically using Go, Rust. We were using like the state of the art. Here we were like, whoa, like seriously, they're not even using the latest version of Java, for example. And so how do you now combine these two and how do you sort of create this experience? And it should not look like retrofitted within the application. It should kind of feel native. Otherwise, it becomes hard for people to use it. And so that's kind of a lot of interesting challenges that we've been focused on. Uh, My team especially, of course, is responsible for the end product, but... To build the end product, we have a lot of like orthogonal smaller teams which focus on the internal infrastructure. First of all is, hey, how do we build this infrastructure for scale to digest such a huge amount of data coming in? We have like millions of voicemails that are sent every single day. These are the calls we just did not went through. The amount of calls which go through, which get connected and amount of meetings that are being run on the platform is humongous. And so analyzing all of this is sort of the first part of the problem. But now once you've analyzed it, it goes to waste if your end users are still not able to derive value out of this analysis. And so that's sort of like the next set of innovation that we are focusing on is how do we get this information accessible for the end users? How do you sort of bring them back to the right user at the right time? Wow, very interesting kinds of challenges to go through all the way from, you know, going from Go Rust back to Java. So you talked about data. Obviously, there is a ton of data that's already there with Ring Central. especially I'm sure some of your longer-term customers are sitting on troves and troves of data, which you can use to give them a ton of value. And there is also the ongoing generation of multimodal data. So just to get a little bit deeper into the technical stack on your side, would you mind double-clicking on the data challenges, like what's in your data stack? Could you touch a little bit about the data engineering, data processing? How are you basically trying to deal with that multimodality and the volume in order to power the RingSense platform? Yeah, totally. So at a core, we analyze data at different stages. So there is a real-time streaming. So for example, we are having this video meeting, we are streaming this data, and there is a lot of live processing that's happening while this meeting is going on. Once this meeting, and there could be two types of recordings, right? Either you record this meeting after which generates an artifact or you don't. If you don't, then that's it. That's the end of the life cycle of that data artifact. If you end up recording it, that creates an entirely newer sort of experience after that is, hey, once you have the recording. So now within the recording, because we are the owner of this underlying infrastructure, it also gives us a lot of benefit as an AI org is... Now I can sort of pick and choose which users I want to analyze. I can sort of dive deeper into like really high quality data, which is stored really for a small amount of time. And then you purge it because you cannot store such high quality, high fidelity data for so long. And eventually all providers, you know, just compress it, store as an MP3 or even better formats nowadays. After which AI sort of becomes less accurate over time. Like, so we start off there, we have like this access, great access to each of these individual streams, even in the recording, we are able to analyze each of these individual personas separately from this. And whether it's audio or if it's a video recording, then you have like video streams for each of them. You kind of analyze each of these separately. We have this whole pipeline, which sort of digests, like there's a video intelligence layer, like, hey, can we extract some insights, which are really video specific? It could be things like you're sharing a slide deck. Can we now use this to 
create interesting points within the recording as to where you should jump back into if you're sort of just doing a video demo of a product or something. So there is some of these metadata that is associated with the recording. The recording itself becomes a much more richer artifact after this. Similar on the audio side, you do things like noise cancellation and so on and so forth, eco cancellation if possible, store this. Once this media is generated, after that, the idea is you use all of this metadata to keep on adding additional insights layer and stop relying on the underlying media. So once you transcribe an audio, once you sort of extract all the intelligence that is possible, then you just work off this now humongous text data that we generate. It is structured, but within structure, there is a lot of like, for instance, transcript is a structured data, but within the transcript, you have free-flowing conversations. So there is a lot of design in terms of how do we handle this now chaos in terms of what can people talk about what is important versus what is not it kind of changes based on what is the persona or who are we analyzing this for which generates this whole suites of like insights it could be things like summary of a meeting as simple as that all the way till you can create things like hey i'm interested in very simple things like some whenever my customer or a competitor is mentioned you can make it much more complicated is hey i want to understand why our customers calling what is the reason of the call now that's where you go one level above you've analyzed every single call you've analyzed this data for every single call now you're sort of doing an aggregate of this analysis which can then be used to create different types of trends. So with each of these, there is a whole lineage of this artifact. What are the different dependencies based on this dependence? What is it that can be aggregate, not aggregate, which is important, what is not important, mm -hmm. which creates like a whole another data lineage. All of this now becomes complicated as it's tied to data retention policies, tied to GDPR, tied to all of these things. Every company has their own nuances of, hey, we want this data to be deleted within one day, 30 days, one month, one quarter. And some of them pay us extra to never delete this data, which creates like this whole challenge of, okay, data residency, data retention, data deletion, along with the whole artifact. It's also created a lot of interesting legal challenges for us as well, right? Is, hey, how do we now incorporate all of this AI from a legal standpoint to our end customers? Mm -hmm. Like, how do we help them understand what is the new lineage who is touching all of this data, right? Because yeah. this is such a sensitive data. Employees should not have access to it. And then who has access to this data? How can this be analyzed? How can they take this data or how can they delete this data? And that's where like the whole LLMs helped us in a way to make customers aware of AI and existence of how it can potentially use. It also created a lot of like mistrust within the system as well, because historically communications is as simple as pick up a phone, call somebody. Now you have yeah. made it a lot more smarter, but also at the yeah. cost of a lot of data privacy along the yeah. way. So yeah. that's it, like it's, it's totally fascinating. I mean, yeah, absolutely. We went from, hey, you know, it's just a conversation between, you know, the three of us, no prior context all the way up to, you know, if there is an insight that's going to show up saying, hey, you have a competitor's product installed on your computer that's called Zoom, <laughs> you know, that, that would be... Uh, exactly. <laughs> it's it's fascinating. Sushan, before we move off of this topic, one thing that definitely jumps off here is the massive volumes of data that you are processing. And, you know, we went through this wave of big data and then the modern data stack. There is so much that's happened over the past decade, particularly, but even 
now leading up to all of this around data as a challenge. So just wanted to like, maybe if you can call out one big challenge or what are some of the biggest challenges that are still in your view, not yet solved or not solved well, that you think, you know, this podcast is obviously for founders of early stage startups. So I'm asking this question also from that perspective, if if there is something that founders can keep an eye on, what are some like the biggest pressing problems around data you would say, given your experience here at Central in particular? There is a whole bunch of things I can think of, but as a whole, right, there is like great companies which do very well on just one modality of the data. Like if you talk about text, you'll find like great companies who do, you know, amazing work in like lineage for text. How do you analyze this data? Suddenly, once you go to audio, the landscape is completely empty. Nobody wants to deal with audio. Audio is messy. It's just hard to manage and there's just too much volume to extract intelligence. The way people do today is, hey, transcribe it and do everything. But then you lose a lot of cues if you transcribe something. Like you lost all the, house. did somebody talk? You know what did they speak? You lost the how part of it, which also is quite important in a lot of sense. Like, hey, what was the emotion, for example? Were they angry when they said this? So that sort of context is lost. Even in case of video, video intelligence, there is a lot of work which has been done on video intelligence side of things. But in terms of if you look at a multimodal data set as a whole, and we've we've talked with way too many companies around this is, hey, can I have one product which can help me manage all of this data? Unfortunately, that does not exist today. So we have like different things for text, different for video, different for just managing like the audio infrastructure. A lot of it is built in-house as well because we cannot ship the data out and a lot of like interesting companies which work today, but the expectation is you send out you store the data in their cloud or in their data centers, which again becomes a strict no for us. So we need something that can be installed within our data centers. A lot of our data is not even on the cloud. So it needs to like go to the customer. So there's a whole bunch of that. That is like one challenge, one key challenge for us is how do we tackle this within like a singular product? And I don't know if it's possible to do within a single product because each modality with itself brings in a different set of challenges. And then the second sort of aspect, which also ties back to a multimodal sort of environment is once you start generating AI insights, monitoring these AI insights depend a lot on this modality. And so you have a lot of interesting players who do create at, let's say, tabular data, where you can easily model drifts on tabular data. It's very hard to model these on unstructured data or free-flowing data. And how do we find whether you have some prompts for summarization. Are they still working well today? OpenAI just released an update. Are they still well enough? Or like there's this whole newer set of challenges which is emerging now is, hey, is this right? And if you think about the growth of AI models, right? We were at a point where we were just not solving enough problems. So there are like maybe five AI models. Then it started working very well. So you ended up with 50 to 60 AI models in production at any given time. All of this started becoming consolidated with LLMs. Like you now have one LLM which does it. Again, it'll start splitting is, oh, we don't want to do open AI again for everything. So we want everything in us. Again, you start splitting it back. So <laughs> with it, it has also created a very interesting challenge for the ops lifecycle teams. We are, the PS is changing so rapidly that you cannot be very opinionated about what is the tech stack you're using because very soon, Within six months, maybe something is going to change. Like 
you cannot yeah. completely go all in on hey i just want a llm wrapper and it should be able to call different llm because oh tomorrow you're building your own and that needs like a different way of doing things for sure yeah i can see gohan vigorously nodding his head i'm i'm sure you sound like one of his colleagues so that's a great segue would love to get gohan's take on this obviously from the perspective of jasper gohan can you tell us how much you can relate with what sushant just had to say yeah, <laughs> maybe absolutely. we can start with that yeah couldn't agree more i think the pace of play of working with llms is just so much faster than any other industry that's been out there i mean compare us to the mobile revolution and we make them look slow right now which is pretty insane to say right just with the amount of new products and new techniques that are coming out new surrounding technologies it's always been our opinion and the reason that we've chosen to have a multimodal approach from the very beginning is that we truly believe this like as the landscape changes we need to be flexible enough to adapt with the landscape rather than say go all in on just one provider hope that they're going to give us the appropriate functionality to get to the next pieces overall in the future i think my prediction is that some of these llms will need to differentiate overall right like we will consolidate onto a point of base functionality that everyone can do but at a certain point these llms need to figure out what they're good at and we'll have to use them for those purposes we're already starting to see that right now in which like you have some of these new open source models that are better at context awareness or not as opinionated on content filtering that's a whole another thing right is like as you you know shushant was talking about like the legal side of things you look at openai and anthropic and some of the other large providers and they're very opinionated on their privacy and and content filtering which is a good thing i think is like an appropriate technique to take especially from their perspective but certain customers especially in the marketing space don't necessarily want to have all of the regulations for them so that they can utilize it for product descriptions appropriately or they don't want to use maybe they're entirely sourced in one particular stack and they really don't want to use another LLM because they feel like my data is being transferred out of out of where I feel comfortable into a place where I don't feel comfortable so like the data privacy and security concerns also make it so important especially to your end customer that you have multiple options for them you're actually able to educate them i think is the other big thing that we've really realized over the last year or so is that as we talk to more of these you know we continue to sell in the enterprise education becomes a huge part of the process there's this idea especially with companies that are a little more rooted in traditional ml techniques that you have these like consistent learning practices that happen with ai models and that's kind of not the case with LLMs, right? You have this initial black box that you put up and then you're not learning on the fly as you continue to add more data through it. So like simple stuff like that you have to continue to educate and kind of get your customer to kind of buy into before they can get to the point where they feel comfortable with you pumping data through a foundational model. But in certain cases they're just not comfortable with that. So they're thinking about like, "Hey, I'm an enterprise company and I really want to bring my own model to the game." we think we can do it better than everyone else can you guys do what you want with your model or with our model and you know that's another modality i think that everyone is kind of exploring and find super interesting shushant you were talking about the large problems with data engineering and structuring data especially with the multimodal space like obviously we don't do a lot of video and audio but 
we do what I would call a lot of lightly structured data or less structured data, as you would relate in the text and image space. So if you're taking PDFs that are 90% text and 10% images or 10% text and 90% images, can't treat them all the same. But marketers expect that, hey, I'm just giving you PDFs. You should be able to glean a lot of insights out of this regardless. And so there's huge data problems on how you use LLMs appropriately to actually ingest data from those, which I think are ripe for solving right now. And I think there's a lot of people trying to solve that problem, which is great. There's just a long way to go, I think, with them. Yeah, for sure. Before we jump deeper into the LLM sphere, Gohan, so clearly you have a very, very important role in Jasper and perhaps a challenging one too. I mean, you have different constituencies and there's obviously infinite flexibility, which I'm sure you could provide if you, if you had infinite budget to go along with it, right? But there's going to be some constraints that you'd have to work with in leading the platform here. So could you share with us what are some of your biggest challenges, especially in as far as trying to keep up with all of the stuff that is going on that other companies are doing and then enabling your own internal customers? What are some of the key challenges that you think it could be either on the technology front or it could be more of a, hey, you know, it's, it's easier for me to get this out the door. But then, you know, maintaining this stuff, that's been like 99% of the resources. So yeah. is, is there anything like that? in the platform that you're in charge of? Even with any fast-moving startup, I think one recurring problem or run recurring thing that you have to focus on is how do you create new solutions without also leaving a wake of tech debt behind you? And that becomes even more of a thing on the top of our mind as we work at the pace that we need to work to create new solutions. So... A big challenge that I think we have is trying to understand when is the right time to accept a quick, nimble solution that's going to get something in front of a customer. And when is the right time to really invest in building this larger platform to support that in the long term? Both have their ups and downs, both have their pros and cons, but you really need to be certain when you're thinking about building some of these larger platform pieces that it's not going to be immediately usurped by the new portion of the landscape, right? A good example of that is OpenAI released function calling a while ago. And before function calling came out, there was a lot of talk about like, hey, what can we do to be thinking about functionally routing different use cases to different areas or picking up other pieces of code as part of a particular LLM prompt. So as we started thinking about that, OpenAI release function calling, we're like, well, we're really glad we didn't go go down that rabbit hole and start building out a platform that could do something like that because we got released, something got released that actually helps us do that. Now, function calling is starting to become table stakes for all LLMs. So yeah, I think that is one of the larger challenges. Other than that, I think really keeping our customer, I mean, I probably am going to go back to customer obsession more often than anything else, but keeping our customer in mind from a platform perspective is also one of the biggest things that we always try to hang our hat on when it comes to making a decision. And customer obsession for us is two different things, right? We have two core customers from the platform. We have our end customer, obviously, who's going to be using the product, but we also have our internal customer, which is our like sales engineers, our developers, our AI team, and we want to make sure we're appropriately resourcing and building tools for the right teams. 
making sure that they can actually stay focused on what they're trying to build and what they're trying to provide as value rather than forcing them to kind of solve a lot of their own problems when it comes to these internal tool type situations. So yeah, I I think as with any startup, there's just a ton of challenges that you always go through. And And it changes constantly too. We've been in the large language space since pre chat GPT. And so one evolution that we had to go through is before ChatGPT came out in the infancy of the company, we were really focused on B2C solutions. We were focused mm-hmm. on building directly for our prosumer, directly for our, that solo entrepreneur and small agency or company there. And then after ChatGPT came out, you know, it was really great for us because it showed everyone the magic of large language models. Like before yep. that, we were kind of everyone's secret tool that nobody really knew about. And then all of a sudden, ChatGPT came out and really showed how the magic of it all works. Mm -hmm. But after it, we were faced with the challenge of, okay, well, do we still want to play in the space where we feel like there's going to be a lot of new people starting and trying to take some of that market share? Or do we feel like we can provide something that is really valuable and move up market into that enterprise space? Mm -hmm. And so... All of that happens in like the last year, right? And we go through like yep. four or five different similar moments over the, you know, the subsequent six to nine months. And so as we shift priorities and shift momentum, keeping the platform stable enough to be able to say like, well, okay, if we're need to go and be an enterprise solution, that means we need to make sure that we're compliant with all these things. Our mm-hmm. security is fully up to snuff. We're able to bring on these large enterprises and have them feel really comfortable with the level of, you know, the standard that they're going to get with uptime and security. So a whole new set of requirements. Yeah. It's a whole, and those requirements change constantly. Same with the AI side, right? Is requirements are changing almost daily as we see new innovations, as we see new open source tools, we're trying to think, okay, what really provides value here and trying to think a little bit more applied and trying to think less of this kind of massive long-term project that could essentially change within a couple of months. Yep, so yep. focusing, I think, really on rapid iteration and, and the short-term with a long-term vision to kind of hang our hat on is what helps us adapt to those challenges. Yeah. I think for all of us in any capacity in the AI space, it feels like time just compressed exponentially in the last several months. You talk quite a bit about large language models, Gohan. So one topic that I wanted to chat about with both of you, and, and maybe since you sort of have the mic here, maybe you can touch upon this too, Gohan. And you have the context of now working at a startup, but before that you were not at a startup. And you've seen different engineering roles and how people collaborate, like especially software engineering, data science, data engineering, ML engineering. So curious to hear, now there is the post-LLM world and the pre-LLM world, or maybe the teams that are working on large language models and the team that is not. Are there any shifts that you're seeing in as far as what is the composition of the team now, especially the teams that are taking these large language models and embedding it into applications or powering applications? What's changed in your view of who's doing what? I will say the biggest change for me is I think it is now a core skill set for any engineer, regardless of where you are in the organization, to have the ability to work with large language models. And when I say work with, I mean, utilize and apply the large language models to whatever use case you have, whether that is 
you're using them to help you be a better coder. You're using them to help you get your tests into a better spot, your CI into a better spot, or you're legitimately using them to provide end user solutions. I think no matter where you sit in the organization, and you know maybe this is just my position working in an AI company, but I think it's table stakes now to just understand how to use that and even extends beyond the engineering org. If you're a marketer that's going into the next phase of their career and looking for a new job, I think most organizations are now going to have the expectation that you understand how to use some of these AI tools to be able to get you to the next phase of your career, like really improve your performance and improve your outputs. So for one, I think just the skill set that's required to be an engineer anywhere, that's just a necessity. I do think that the team compositions are changing a little bit too. We've tried it a few different ways at Jasper and we'll continue to play with it as the landscape changes. But there are times in which we feel like embedding somebody with that deep AI expertise onto a team to help them understand how to build a product feature appropriately is really important. So having a combination of product engineers with front and back end engineers and a data scientist or you know, a deep ML engineer is really what allows us to bring the most value to a particular product feature. A good example of that is, you know, we have something we call company intelligence, which is kind of like a rag system with, you know, extra bells and whistles on it. It allows us to let our customers upload and add new pieces of content that we'll use as context for a new content generation. When building that system, it's really important that we had a cross-functional team that understood the deep intricacies of how RAG needs to actually operate and how to optimize RAG systems while also building out really great data pipelines and really solid retrieval mechanisms and also a great AI-driven design. You know, I'll probably talk a lot about AI-driven design at another time, but I think that is a new skill set that's really being developed. And in finding ways to bring AI solutions to users without them feeling like they are over the top or over engineered or even under engineered, right? That that's the other, that's the other side of it is it sometimes things can be too easy with AI. And one, you don't get great feedback from customers when that's the case. And not having feedback, a feedback loop with the AI systems you're using means that you're not improving your system. And so making it almost underdesigned is just as bad as making it overdesigned in that regard. Totally. All great points, Gohan. And AI-driven design happens to be one of the podcast ideas that I have for a future podcast. So (laughs) I definitely agree with all of that. So Sushant, it's interesting. So I know your team at RingCentral is a little bit different. I mean, obviously, RingCentral is very much different from Jasper in that it's it's a couple decades old and not AI first in that sense. But you and and your team in RingCentral is like the heart and mind of where you know everything AI is happening. So you're you're differently constituted. Could you talk a little bit about, I guess, how your team is interfacing with you know software developers and data scientists and data engineering and ML engineering? Are they all spread out in different groups? Are there elements in common between how Guhan described how their team is trying to develop AI products versus yours? Yeah. I think there is a lot of common denominators in terms of how we are doing it, as well as Guhan and team are also trying to structure their teams around. One of the things for us has been that even though we have been part of a larger ring central organization, we have been very focused on creating AI as an entirely different org 
what that has helped us is figure out what is the team composition or the distribution that we care about. So we started off with just core ML engineers, data scientists, like a mix of our platform engineering team. And slowly we added the other roles alongside, which is like a front end team, which will now interface with the products that we are actually trying to build. And a lot of time that I spent earlier after our acquisition was, hey, how do we make sure that AI itself is not running in a silo? How do we sort of collaborate effectively with the other organizations which are present, which are building different sets of products? How do we sort of negotiate and create pathways into creating some, you know, initially we started off just as some features within a bigger product before we ended up creating our own product line within the AI org. So there has been some interesting challenges, but in terms of where I would sort of agree a lot with what Cohen was saying is every engineer kind of needs to get away from what they already know and sort of understand that this is the new reality. This is not going away. So people who embrace it just are much better at what they're doing. Like, Historically, we had a data science team who was not very good at writing production-ready code. And that was a given expectation, right? I mean, you have a different org. You'll have a different set of people who will like, take this work, do it better so that it's production-ready. And now what we're seeing is the original data science team that I had, they are actually raising really good quality work just because now they have access to co-pilot and everything within their arsenal so the original sort of standards of engineering which were typically not present for them are now actually easier to meet for them so we hired a lot of like newer guys and who were now getting on board with this whole llm assisted development or you know just analyzing the data even data analysis has been phenomenal for analysts Historically, people who are really good at writing SQL queries are not necessarily good at analyzing the output of those queries. And so ideally, you want somebody who does both sides of things to effectively derive value out of that role. And so people like there is, it's been like this productivity boost, not just in terms of like helping write queries, but it's actually a singular person who now has enough understanding of both to actually create value out of their role or just have great experience out of it. So we've been trying out few different ways of how to organize teams in general. One of the challenges that I do have, which is a much different challenge, is I have teams in like a lot of different countries and collaboration itself is a nightmare. On top of it, all of this AI-enabled collaboration is kind of creating uh, a different set of challenges. So we've tried out a different set of like pod type of structures where you have like a few set of people who work together for a certain product feature. And one of the experiences that I have had is if you are thinking about a product feature today, from a data standpoint, it's already too late because you need a lot of analysis to be done to actually ship that feature. And so it's also on the roadmap side is you kind of need to predict what is it that you want to ship in the next few quarters so that you can start like doing a lot of data science work and once they're ready with something which effectively becomes good enough to actually be part of the product then you tie them up with a product engineer and uh, the rest of the stack so that's some of the things we have been experimenting again the space is changing so quickly but the good thing is we've tried to be super agile in that sense is like 
change is the only key. Like if you stick to a process too long, we are already obsolete in that sense. Yeah, that's a great note to start tying things together. And definitely looks like LLM is infusing every different persona's workflow here and making a developer who didn't have data science skills acquire that and someone who's been a data analyst become a super data analyst, perhaps even a developer. So there's there's a lot of commingling of roles that is likely to happen in the future. So that is, I think, one takeaway for our audience here in particular for thinking about building the next-gen products. So to close things, Sushant, is this a question, you know, this is a prediction, if you will. So who do you think would have the more glamorous job two years from now? In your view, would that be an ML engineer, a data scientist? Do you think it would be a software developer or a data engineer? And why? I feel like ML engineers would sort of take the Trump eventually, just because they are poised at a way where they have the best chance of impact, so to say. The historic role of data scientists is blurring a lot in terms of like, as we go towards the next year or so, we might not even have enough people doing, building their own sets of like smaller suite of models, right? Their responsibilities is also going to change significantly. And so I also feel like a lot of these roles, every company anyway has their own way of defining these as to uh, ML engineer in one org is not necessarily the same in a different company altogether. But I feel like ML engineers would essentially just become supercharged data scientists in that sense, because a lot of things which were not historically available to them are now available for them. And just because they can effectively build out things, there'll be a lot more in demand, I would say. Okay. Sushant, thank you for that. So you think ML engineers win. Guhan, of course, no pressure to agree with uh, Sushant whatsoever. (laughs) So who do you think would have the more glamorous job two years from now? I'm going to maybe say something a little bit on the other side of it. I think what we define as a full stack engineer is now going to encompass way more than it does now as we define it. A full stack engineer now is probably just someone that can work in the front end and the back end, but isn't expected to really have great data engineering skills or be a data scientist or do some ML work. I think with AI tooling, the democratization of those skill sets are now going to be something that as you start a new company, your full stack engineer needs to be part data engineer, part ML engineer, part full stack, part, you know, back end and front end. So I think as we move to the future, you know, we've been through this phase of like hyper specialization of engineering roles. I think over the next few years, we may see us moving back to a little bit more of a generalist role as the ability to be able to do all of those jobs as a generalist at a much higher bar than we were able to previously do to LLMs and AI is just going to make it much more valuable to move to the job to be done rather than to focus on the one job that you have. So whatever we're going to call the new full stack engineer, I think that's where we're going to be the most valuable. I fully agree. We need a new name for the next gen full stack engineer. The full stack engineer already feels too old. Awesome. On that note, really, really appreciate your taking the time, Gohan and Sushant. Love this conversation. And Until next time, thank you very much for the audience signing up here for the Enterprise GTM podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Enterprise GTM podcast. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, 
If you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on your favorite podcast platform so we can continue to help enterprise founders thrive. Thrive.